The basis of our salvation is the redeeming work of Christ. And then the second major point was uh, covering the liberal criticisms of the vicarious atonement. That's uh, atonement for another person. That's what vicarious means. Someone atoning for someone else's sins. Okay? And their criticisms, the first criticism was that the Christian way of salvation through grace, um, through the cross of Christ, sorry, is dependent on history. Right? That's their first criticism. How can you trust it? It, it depends on something of the past. You can only trust the here and now. That's, that's a liberalism, right? Um, secondly, they criticize the way of salvation through the cross of Christ because it's narrow. There's only one name that you can be saved by, and it's Jesus Christ. You can't be saved by your own works. You can't be saved in any other way. It's only through Jesus. They criticize that. The third criticism is that how can one person suffer for the sins of another? And we talked about examples. We, we talked about the example of uh, someone going off to war uh, in the military, how that person suffers for others. That's, that's a pretty basic thing. But the main difference is that it is the person of Christ, right, that accomplishes the work, the human and the divine nature. The human nature, the perfect human nature, upheld by the person, the divine person, uh, suffers while the divine nature does not suffer, but still accomplishes the work, right? And fourthly, we have come to the fourth point. They criticize the Christian way of salvation through the cross of Christ because to them it degrades the character of God. They say it is to strip Christianity of its joy. It alienates God from man. It is as if God is just waiting around for someone to atone for sins instead of just freely granting salvation. This is their argument. For the liberal, God is more willing to forgive than we are willing to be forgiven. So it all depends on man to accomplish forgiveness, not God. And this comes from liberalism's faulty, uh, faulty view of sin. To the liberal, sin is a trifling matter. Remember, for the liberal, sin is just an imperfection, not a transgression against a holy God. And since sin is taken lightly, then the curse of God's law because of sin is also taken lightly. They say God can easily let bygones be bygones. Machen says this sounds pleasant, but in reality it is the most heartless thing in the world. He starts to reference not only sinning against God, but also sinning against neighbor. Uh, think of the more serious sins uh, like murder. What if there was no justice for murder? And how can you get rid of the murderer's sins? Is repentance enough? Is letting bygones be bygones enough? No. Because that sin is still credited to that murderer's account. Right? It has not been wiped away. And that's a reminder. Our, our repentance does not wipe away our sin. We're called to repent. But repentance doesn't get rid of sin, does it? And think of all those, who, that, uh, all those that we have sinned against and how they will suffer. Doesn't it, doesn't it feel 
like we won't gain any true peace until we suffer in their place. Do we ever feel that way when we do something wrong against someone? We, we feel nothing can pay for this unless I suffer too in this person's place. We need to go back and make, thing, make things right. Uh, this is a common theme in movies, uh, if you've ever watched something like this. And this is just sin against man. Imagine now the sins we commit against God. The truly penitent man will not settle for just having his sin forgotten, but he wants the effects of sin wiped out, to have it cleansed from his account. Who can do this and how? Uh, I love how Machen is not only addressing practical problems with liberalism, but he is also a systematic theologian. He's rooting the problem in a lack of doctrine, in a lack of true systematic theology. It is only through the person and work of Christ that we can have our sins wiped away. Who is this person? He is both very God and very man. If he wasn't God, the sacrifice on the cross would have no power to save. If he wasn't man, the sacrifice would have been impossible because God can't die and he would never have taken on the penalty that is due to man. The only one who can solve this problem of sin is God. It is only by the work of the person of Christ on the cross who atoned for sin. And when he died on the cross, it was as if it was us who died on the cross. And we have been made right with God through this one act. Our debt has been canceled both to God and to man. But most of all to God because all sin, even sin against man, is a sin against God. So to deny the necessity of the atonement is also to deny the existence of a moral order. It is to deny Jesus' own teaching on the justice of God. God is not only love, but he is also just. And Jesus spoke terrible words about the consequences of sin. There is an even, uh, even a, an unforgivable sin when we deny the work of Christ. So Jesus did not accept this light view of sin. But what about God's love, they ask? Doesn't God's grace swallow up his justice? Why does he have to wait for a price to be paid in order that sin can be forgiven? Shouldn't he just forgive because he is love? Isn't this contradictory? Our answer is no. The New Testament speaks of God as love, but it also speaks of God's wrath. Not just God's wrath, but guess what? Also the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation. The Lamb, Jesus Christ. And this wrath is on sin. But again, this reasoning all proceeds from a light view of sin, as if sin doesn't matter to God at all. And get this, our sin, we think of it as just mistakes or falling short, it actually proceeds from a hatred of God. We sin because we hate God. So our sin is demonstrating that we hate God. But all those who have a heavy view of sin have little difficulty in accepting the doctrine of the cross of Christ. And get this, it is God out of his own love who makes sacrifice for sin so that we could return to him. 
God himself in the person of the Father spared not his own son, but offered him up for us all. So salvation is as free for us as, we, as the air we breathe. This is true love, the true love of God. God is truly love. And it is this love and this love alone that brings joy to men. Uh, they are seeking their joy in the work and ideas of men when we can only find true love in the God described in the scriptures. But they ask, again, how can we rejoice in a God who is like a mean tyrant? They say, forget all this old theology. Let us make a God in our image in which we can rejoice in. Let us rejoice in a God who is not wrathful at all. If we're thinking this way about God, then why bother with God at all? Is what he asks. If God does not hate sin, and if this version of God has a heaven, would he allow sin into heaven? Also consider the example of human suffering in this world. If God is all loving, and because he is all loving, then there is no consequences for sin. Who or what caused all this human suffering? Is that a good God? If there is no justice... How is their reasoning consistent with the fact that horrible things happen every day? So this God who doesn't require a sacrifice for sin is neither taught to us by nature, nor is it taught in the Bible. Nature teaches us that there's a judgment, that there are consequences for sin, whether our own personal sin or others. And the Bible teaches that the Lord is a consuming fire. Uh, Jesus spoke of the outer darkness and the everlasting fire and the unforgivable sin. You can't make religion joyful but only looking on the, by only looking on the bright side of God and how God is love while ignoring his justice. Uh, this is why I believe people are li- leaving liberal churches today in droves. Right? There is no answer to the problems. Their God is not consistent with reality, nor what the Bible teaches about the true God. So this joy that they pursue ends in a disaster because the true God is mysterious. He cannot be found, and he is hidden in unapproachable light. The so-called joyful religion that they pursue is, as Machen says, just decorating their prison cells with tinsel. Yet we all come away dissatisfied with the bondage Relative goodness, which he says is no goodness at all. Dissatisfied with sinful friends and longing for true communion with God. But God is separate from sinners. And in the liberal system of Christianity, we would only be looking forward to judgment. But thanks be to God that he is our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose for us. He has restored us in a right relationship with God through his sacrificial death. And beloved, this is the source of our religious joy. So place all your trust in Jesus and you will enter the presence of the very God and live. It is the only way. Any questions from that first part before we move to the second? So the main issue is, is they see no point of sacrifice. Why doesn't God just forgive? And Machen wants to remind us that God is not only love, but he's also justice. There must be justice for sin. 
all sin, our personal sins. There must be justice. Either we're going to pay for it for eternity or someone else pays for it. You have one or the other. That's the only choice. We're not going to be rewarded for the good we have done unless we are in Christ. All right, off to the second part. And there's a quick summary up top going over the prior. Uh, I thought thought maybe I would have finished this uh, first part last week, but I didn't. Um, And who knows how far I'll get into this part. Uh, So the third major point here is answering their criticisms about Christianity, the liberals' criticism, is that the basis of our salvation accomplished and applied results in a new creation. Liberals have criticized the basis of our salvation in four ways. They say it is, the, it is because it is dependent on history, because it is too narrow, because one man can't suffer for the sins of another, and finally, because it degrades the character of God. So far, in all of Machen's responses, he has referred back in history, back to the work of Christ on the cross, the atonement. Now, he moves from the work of Christ in the past, in history, to the work of Christ in the believer, in the present, and the future. Okay? He moves from redemption accomplished, that's what Christ did in history, to redemption applied in the present experience by the work of the Spirit of Christ within us. Because in in this response to the liberal uh, critics, he says that the basis of our salvation, redemption accomplished, results in a new creation, redemption applied. Uh, Christ has not only given the believer a right standing before God, which we didn't have before, but he also has given us a new life in God's presence for eternity. He has saved us, not only from the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. Uh, The New Testament doesn't end with the death of Christ, but it continues with his resurrection, which foreshadows our own resurrection into glory. He rose from the dead into a new life and glory, which he will take us to one day. We, We not only die to sin, but we also live to God now and forever. This is the gospel good news. God has triumphed over our sin in its totality through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one day it will be fully realized. But how? How is the work of Christ applied to the believer? Well, it is by the Holy Spirit in recreating sinners into saints. It is not through using the so-called good that is already in man. Right? It's not through good influences or influencers. There are a whole lot of influencers out there now. I mean, I'm, I'm a YouTube fanatic sometimes. I go on YouTube and you see all these people in influencing. And it's like, oh my goodness, just get a life. This is a new life altogether. It is a new birth. As Jesus said, you must be born again. These words are despised by the liberal because it requires something supernatural to occur. It requires something outside of the natural world which 
the liberal believes is all you need. All you need is what we have here in this world. We don't need to be born again. This requires a miracle. It requires God to enter into the hearts of men, to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. It does not and cannot begin with man and his so-called good choices. We cannot choose to be born again. Right? You hear those preachers from the revival days telling people, be born again. How do you do that? You can't. You can't. Because the modern liberal's most important doctrine, which is plastered all over the world on billboards and signs and stadiums and popular music and in TV commercials, is that the world's evil can be overcome by the world's good, by the good choices and the inherent goodness of man. But what did Jesus say? Only God is good. And only God can transform the heart of a sinner and grant him new life. And as the scriptures teach, it is only by the person and finished work of Christ. Um, I, I don't plan these studies. We're starting to go through Galatians. As we go through Galatians, we will see exactly this point being made. They were trying, in the, book, in the letter to Galatians, the Galatians were trying to accomplish righteousness by works, but it can only come from a divine act of God. Machen even addresses the problem with prison reform. And seeing the good in everyone, even those who have committed heinous crimes. We shouldn't tell people in prison that they are bad or insist on their sin, but we should find the good in them and bring that out, right? Doesn't this sound familiar? Now, in principle, this is good, right? We've, we find this principle even in the Bible. It follows the principle of love in 1 Corinthians 13, where we are to be patient with one another, expecting the best of others, covering the sins of others, which means we're not to gossip or blab about other people's sins, we're to overlook minor offenses. Uh, in Philippians 4.8, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So there is a principle of positive thinking in the Bible. There is a principle of loving one another and loving others despite their faults. There is a principle of overcoming evil with good. Even the evils of society, there is a lot of good being done, even by non-Christians. We should commend these things for sure. But this falls within the realm of what we call common grace, where the rain falls on the just and the unjust, or the sun shines on the just and the unjust. Grace that is outside of the work of salvation and redemption that restrains evil in the world. Now, common grace is not the work of the church, but it is for common or worldly institutions. Uh, the governments of this world, including our government, 
have used common grace throughout history. But this common grace only goes so far. One thing common grace doesn't do is it doesn't remove the disease of sin. It only fights the symptoms. It changes the form of the disease. Sometimes the disease is hidden, but it is never cured. The only way to cure the disease of sin is to attack the root of it. Because this disease doesn't just make people sick. It kills us. We are dead in sin, not just sick. Right? So you need new life. And the only way you can receive life, the only way you can be born to a new life, is through the work of Christ alone. One of the greatest texts that speak of redemption accomplished and applied, that speaks of both justification as well as sanctification, is found in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In that point in history, when Christ was hanging on the cross, my old sinful self was hanging with him. I was crucified with Christ, and now Christ lives in me today. That's redemption applied. This doesn't mean we're suddenly transformed into Christ himself or that our personalities are eliminated But there is a loving relationship that we now share in between Christ and the believer. There is a break in a man's life when he becomes a Christian. There is a transformation that goes on in his life from that moment until he reaches glory. According to Paul, he becomes a new man entirely. It's not just a change in motive, but it is a new life altogether. It is a new creation, a new birth. And in that new life, there is a new relation between the sinner and God. This new life is instituted by justification, which is the act of God where he pronounces a sinner righteous in his sight because of the atoning death of Christ, not anything that the sinner has done. And asking whether regeneration The new birth comes before or after justification is unnecessary because they are both aspects of one salvation and they both stand at the beginning of the Christian life. Right? New birth as well as justification. Same time. We we don't have to worry about was I justified before? No. Happens at one moment. Whereas sanctification occurs throughout the Christian life. So the Christian doesn't just have a promise of new life, but the Christian possesses new life here and now, even when there remains sin within him. He possesses it. It's not a promise anymore. And he doesn't just have a promise of being declared righteous. He has already been declared righteous in his justification Here and now, even when he slips up and falls short. 
We're not waiting to be justified. We've already been justified. Despite our failures from this point on. So at the beginning of the Christian life, there stands not a process, but a definite act of God. Now, this doesn't mean that every Christian can tell exactly when he was justified and born again. Some can give an exact date, an hour of their conversion, while others can't. Others were converted in what Machen calls the quietness of God. They were raised and catechized in a Christian home where they placed their faith in Christ at a young age. It's not necessary that all should pass through the agonies of soul before being saved. Here again, as in many other points, uh, Machen moves away from some of the forms of Puritanism and Pietism. Uh, the Pietism of the first great, or what some people call pretty good or not so good, awakening. Both experiences are legitimate. Both are to be considered as holy experiences and shouldn't be criticized by other Christians because they are acts of God. It's not the man that's doing it, but it is God that does it. So to question these conversions is to question God. This is his point. The conversion of a Christian is not an act of man, but of God. Again, read Galatians. This doesn't mean that in our conversion, he doesn't use our will and our choices to choose Christ. But the primary cause of our salvation is God, not man. It is the spirit of God that works in us to enable us to believe in Christ for salvation. And at the center of Christianity is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Here, Machen affirms that this is the center of reformational doctrine. Uh, some have claimed, <clears throat> not sure if you've heard it, some have claimed that it was only Martin Luther and the Lutherans who made this central while the reform focused on the spirit, sanctification, holiness of life, and our union with Christ. But that's false. Maybe for later pietism of the 18th century. But Machen says at the center of Christianity is the doctrine of justification by faith. But now we got to answer what is faith? What is faith? Uh, this is another disagreement that the Christian has with the liberal. Faith becomes central for the liberal, but it is faith in faith. They say it doesn't matter what you believe. What is important is that you have faith in something. Did you ever hear that before? Because faith in something will pr promote some kind of goodness or quality of life. You probably heard something like that from an older, wiser person, maybe a nice old grandmother whom you thought was a believer but proved not to be by saying that it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or, or Buddha as long as you're a good person and you're not committing any crimes. I think after a while of witnessing such total depravity in the world, you begin to settle for superficial morality and you say, okay, at least this person isn't killing anybody or they're not cheating on their spouse, right? I think they're okay. 
That's the only way that I can make sense of someone saying these sorts of things. Others say that it is unloving to be dogmatic about faith, always talking about doctrine. And it is better to have an undogmatic faith that is loving, a faith less weakened by knowledge. They say knowledge weakens faith, when in reality, knowledge is of the essence of faith. You can't have faith without knowledge. Now, you can be a noisy gong. You can be a clanging cymbal, as Paul says, if you have knowledge and faith with no love. But that doesn't mean you're not to pursue doctrinal knowledge. Peter says the contrary in 2 Peter chapter 1, that we are to pursue knowledge. That is part of Christian maturity and growth. And as we pursue knowledge, we are also to add Love. So we are to pursue both love and knowledge in the Christian life. Because faith has an object. And the question is, is your object of faith reliable? Is it trustworthy? Is it objective? You can't just have faith in anything you please and make believe everything is going to be okay. That's insanity. And the object of your faith must be true and trustworthy. If not, it is a false faith. Today, most people believe in the usefulness of faith. Faith is just a means to a happy life or a life without worry. But they ignore the object of faith. The object in whom we are to enjoy. That brings joy to our lives. They say the object is unimportant. But your faith is only as true and reliable as the object of faith. It's like today, people trust in all sorts of things. They they believe that they are what they're not. It's borderline insanity. And the, the common response is, well... You can believe you can fly all you want, but if you jump off a cliff, you're going to hit the ground, and it's going to hurt. Just because you believe in something doesn't make it true. Okay? Scripture says this as well. If you have faith in false gods or idols made out of human hands, the Lord says they are not gods at all. Paul says they don't even exist. So, your faith is useless. If your faith is in these things. So faith is not just an opinion or a feeling. Faith is grounded in the true knowledge of God who exists. Everyone says they have faith. But is it true faith? True faith can only be found in that which is true. Jesus said, believe in God. Believe also in me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are other places in Scripture, such as Galatians 3.23, that speaks of faith coming, or before faith came. Right? This is not talking about our personal experience, when, when faith came in our hearts. This is speaking of faith, or the faith, the doctrine That someone is to believe, specifically Christ. 
Knowledge of doctrine is inseparable from our faith. So you can't just have faith in anything you please. If faith is based upon error, it is not based. It is not faith at all. It doesn't exist. Faith must be based upon truth, or it is useless. But according to the liberal, faith is simply making Christ master in one's life with the goal of seeking the welfare of mankind. So it is a salvation by works. It is salvation by obeying Christ's commands. It's legalism. You're not saved by obeying Christ's commands. You're not, you're not saved by keeping the law. You're saved by grace through faith which produces obedience. So there it is. Machen says, in this way, the whole achievement of the Reformation has been given up. And there has been a return to the religion of the Middle Ages. One of the greatest commentaries ever written has been the commentary by Martin Luther on Galatians. Machen says that Martin Luther's reading of Galatians was the rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by faith. He says, as expounded by Luther and Calvin, the epistle to the Galatians became the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. But liberals are reversing the efforts of the reformers while disguising themselves as Protestants and turning the gospel in Galatians into the piecemeal morality of the Pharisees, as Machen describes. He says, what Paul is primarily interested in, in Galatians is not spiritual religion over ceremonialism. We have ceremonies and rituals that the church observes, which, which we can't ignore, and they were instituted by Christ himself. We practice them every week. But he was concerned with the free grace of God over against human merit. And I quote Machen again, the grace of God is rejected by modern liberalism. And the result is slavery, the slavery of the law, the wretched bondage by which man undertakes the impossible task of establishing his own righteousness as a ground of acceptance with God. And this contradicts the title, liberal, because it gives you the impression that it involves freedom when it doesn't. It is deceptive. While true liberty only comes from God's liberating gospel. Salvation is a gift of God by the grace of God. The gift which involves justification, the removal of guilt, and the establishment of a right relation between the believer and God. A new birth which makes the Christian a new creature. The fourth point, and I'll end with this. The basis of our salvation, and this is in response to the liberal denying that the Christian needs to be a new creation. Okay? His response is that the basis of our salvation results in now living by faith. So liberals would also object to the fact that we are new creatures because they look at the Christian and they say... They don't see that much new about us. They don't see anything new about us. 
We are subject to the same conditions of a fallen world. We have some of the same weaknesses as unbelievers do. And unfortunately, we fall to the same kinds of sins at times. So he answers by saying that the Christian life is now marked by living by faith. He refers to Galatians again. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This summarizes the Christian life. He admits that the Christian lives in the flesh, subject to all of the same old earthly conditions and battling sin, but it is also a life of faith, not sight. The great change has not yet come to full fruition. Sin has not been fully conquered yet. I like what he says here. The beginning of the Christian life is a new birth not an immediate creation of the full-grown man. It's a new birth. We're still babies. We won't see that full-grown man until heaven, and it is definite because of the finished work of Christ. He says, as Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Notice when? At the day of Jesus Christ. A lot of people will will accuse, accuse that as being defeatist. It's not defeatist, it's reality. So we know that we will be made perfect because it is God, the Holy Spirit, who is doing it. And the Christian is to live by faith that this will come to pass. And we continue to strive for that perfection. The Christian life begins with a momentary act of God in justification and regeneration or new birth. Then it is continued by a process which is sanctification. Sanctification is a process of being made holy in the inner man. And the Christian life is marked by warfare, a battle. We don't just sit back and relax. If you're just sitting back and relaxing in your Christian life, there's a serious problem. We are engaged in a fight. It is a faith that works through love. As James said, faith without works is dead. But even the faith and, uh, but even the works and the love that we produce is produced by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. If you look closely at Galatians 5, 6, It is not faith that produces love, but it is the Holy Spirit working in us that produces love. Because to say that faith works is a contradiction. Faith is the opposite of working. Faith does not give, it receives. I had a conversation with someone before. What was the work? Uh, I asked somebody, what was the work that the thief on the cross performed to allow him to enter into heaven if if you're saved by faith and works. Well, he said his works was faith. Faith is not a work. All faith does is receives. 
Faith is passive. Faith is not, um, is not active. It, it doesn't put its hand to the plow. It's receiving and resting <clears throat> on the promises of Christ. So when we say that we live by faith or that faith is working through love, it is another way of saying that through faith, the necessary basis of all Christian work has been obtained in the removal of guilt and the birth of the new man and that the Spirit of God has been received. This is how it is described in Galatians. We'll get there. When the promise of the Spirit has been given, the promise of the Spirit was received by the believer. We didn't work to receive the Spirit. And it is the Spirit who works with and through the Christian for holy living. It is only by the Spirit, the power of the Spirit of God. But not only does the Christian live by faith, but we also live in hope. In the midst of this battle that the Christian is engaged in, we hope to see certain things in this world and in ourselves removed. We hope to see our various fears removed. We see the sad evidences of sin in the believer, and we hope for the day when sin will be completely removed both in ourselves and in others. And Christ has given us this hope, the hope of final victory, and how after we have walked this long road of struggle and fighting against sin, heaven will be waiting for us. Again, to many, this sounds either selfish or defeatist, but it is neither. We're not saying we isolate ourselves from society like monks, right? Many of the monks of the Middle Ages have done this. But in everything we do, there is hope. And it is not just about heaven, right? Heaven for the Christian is not just a place to enjoy ourselves for eternity. It is the place where we will commune with God and with Christ. Some want to go to heaven so they can escape hell. Believing in Jesus becomes just fire insurance. Or, or they want to go to a better place. We've heard this many times before at funerals. He or she is in a better place. But heaven is not just about going to a better place. The truth is, the Christian ought to long for heaven because God is there. Not just because it is a better place. You ever heard the question asked, and it is a good question to examine ourselves with, if you went to heaven and God wasn't there, would you still want to be there? I hope we would answer no. We long to see God face to face in the face of Jesus Christ. Right now, the Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness, knowing that he won't find it in its fullness in this world. Or in this age. Right now the Christian is separated from his savior. By the veil of sense. And by the effects of sin. And Machen argues. It is not selfish. To long to see God face to face. But the Christian life is a life of struggle. But it is also a life of hope. And to see God face to face. Is the Christian's 